The Friday Reporter launched in March of 2021 as a conversation with today's journalists and has expanded to include newsmakers, lawmakers, image makers, and just about anybody who's in the news or the news adjacent business. The podcast is in partnership with PR Daily and is part of the Big Wig Podcast Network. If you like the show, please hit the subscribe button to make sure you've got ready access to the latest conversation. And if you've got an idea for a great guest, don't forget to send your ideas to Lisa at FridayReporter.com. I am thrilled to pieces today to have the conversation about uh, ballots and elections and referendums. And my my guest today is Patrick Wall, who is in a Washington, D.C.-based political professional and good friend of mine who has authored an exceptional book, who's going to tell me all about how it is he has written about a, a campaign and the, the really the referendum that it's brought about. But before I get into that, Patrick, thank you so much for being with me. Thanks so much for having me, Lisa. I appreciate it. So the name of the book is Down Ballot, and it's how a local campaign became a national referendum on abortion. Patrick, how in the world did you get started on this gigantic project? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it's been quite a journey, and I think what people don't realize about books is just how long it takes. This has been over three years between when I started and then when it actually came out, which has been a journey, just learning how the industry works and, and everything. But uh, really, I, I started writing this book because it's a book that, uh, dis, despite the title, it's it it just tells the story of a, a, a really legendary campaign in the area where I grew up. It doesn't uh, make any political points or anything like that. But mm-hmm. this is a story uh, between two women, um, Penny Poland and Rosemary Mulligan, both of whom were state legislators in the Northwest suburbs in Illinois, where I'm from. And when they ran against each other in 1990, um, the election was followed nationally for two reasons. And the first, uh, both of which you've kind of alluded to, the first is that it blew up into this huge uh, campaign that people viewed as a proxy war on the issue of abortion. And this story Definitely has parallels to today. Uh, In 1989, there was a a Supreme Court case uh, called Webster v. Reproductive Health Services. Mm -hmm. And people thought at the time that it was one of the first cases where maybe the Supreme Court would overturn Roe v. Wade. And while they didn't do that, uh, they allowed states some more leeway to, to regulate abortion. And it caused all sorts of political stirs. And one of the first campaigns uh, after that decision came down was the March primary in Illinois uh, in 1990. And so uh, both sides were sort of looking for, uh, to set an example that it was a winning issue, no matter no matter their stance. And so this little state legislative race blew up into a uh, a very expensive contest followed by, by people on both sides uh, of that issue. And uh, the second reason it became such a huge issue and why I know about it growing up is because it uh, was so competitive that at one point it was tied it was decided by a coin toss, and it went to the Illinois Supreme Court and was one of the few decisions to be reached on the issue of dimpled chads. And it was later cited uh, in during the 2000 Florida recount, which yeah. we can talk a little bit more about. But yeah. uh, so I've always learned about, always heard about this story, and, and nobody had written about it. Nobody had interviewed the people who worked on these campaigns. Uh, and as someone who has worked on campaigns, I felt that it would be a good opportunity to tell this and also 
give people a good feeling for what it's like to work on a local race, which I, I, I definitely don't think those deserve more attention than they, than they get these days. Yeah. I love how you make the point too. Um, I have so many questions about this, Patrick. So bear with me while I tinker away at this. Um, first off, I love how you make the point about state legislatures. I have, you know, my background, seven years worked in New Jersey in the state legislature and um, have a tremendous appreciation for how much work these individuals really do. Right. So I, and I love that. Um, And I love that you sort of went in and sort of started to talk about sort of the, the various contours of what happens in the various races in the states as they happen. But this is, to me is so fascinating because it's so relative to now, right? I mean, I think the way we get smart in politics and not lose our lose our minds really is to remind ourselves about history, <laughs> right? So much of what happens and so much of what we're seeing even now in today's uh, narrative and the dialogue that's gone on uh, is is really not new. It's something that we have seen previously. And so tell me a little bit about um, about that particular campaign. Um, in because so many people were focused in on the issue of abortion um, and there wasn't as big of a footprint on the national stage in terms of organizations coming in and getting involved. Um, but this really changed a lot of that. Will you talk to me a little bit about what that looked like? Were, were, was national right to life coming in and having a say, or was this really sort of a back and forth that was happening right there on the local uh, community? Yeah, absolutely. Well, there definitely were national groups on, on both sides of the aisle um, uh, making a play for this race. And uh, so it was between two women, as I mentioned, Penny mm-hmm. Poland, who was the incumbent, a longtime incumbent, uh, elected in 1976. And she was the pro-life candidate. And Rosemary Mulligan was the pro-choice candidate. She was sort of a, she was a paralegal. She really hadn't been involved in politics. And mm-hmm. And she decided to challenge uh, Penny Pullen. And there were a lot of national figures that made appearances in this. Um, uh, Penny Pullen was good friends with Henry Hyde, who okay. yeah. people know for as the namesake of the Hyde Amendment, uh, which prevents you know federal funds from being uh, spent uh, toward toward abortion. And um, so he came and campaigned for her. Oh, interesting. Uh, he, there were all sorts of uh, national figures like. Uh, the McCaskies, the owner of the Chicago Bears, were fundraisers for wow. uh, for uh, Penny Pullen. The DeVos family did fundraisers in this little legislative campaign. Um, you know, uh, there were all sorts of places that, um, you know, that family could have been involved in. Sure. And Richard DeVos, one of the you know richest men in the world at the time, you know, was involved in the National Republican Party you know, bolstering Senate senators and governors and presidential campaigns. And he came to his district to do a fundraiser for this campaign. So (laughs) people were really paying attention to it. And the abortion uh, rights groups certainly were as well. Um, You had the uh, state and national chapters of the uh, NARAL and other pro-choice groups backing Rosemary Mulligan Mm -hmm. uh, through funding. And there's some great quotes in the book about uh, when she decided to run, there was uh, nobody really asked Rosemary Mulligan to run and, and challenge the incumbent. She just sort of did it uh, because she wanted to. And usually people are bolstered in the background by someone. Uh, but she sort of did it in the opposite way, said, I'm running. And then people came to her, her side after the fact. Did so, she run, Patrick, it, specifically on that? Was this the issue that they were running on or did, did this become the issue after she got into the race? 
Uh, it it definitely. So that's an interesting question. It definitely was the the issue that people were viewing this as a, a, a proxy of. And that is definitely the reason why they had, you know, hundreds of volunteers and hundreds of thousands of dollars spent, which back then was was a lot of race and a lot yeah. of money for a race in 1990. Absolutely. Now state legislative campaigns in Illinois, and I know you're from Jersey, it's expensive there. They can it cost is. millions of dollars yeah. for these campaigns. But back then it was a lot of money. And so the people on the outside definitely viewed that as the issue, but both of them faced that interesting quandary of um, trying to prove their point, but also you have to run on local issues. Absolutely. So they had to talk about flooding and taxes and and all sorts of uh, of of other uh, other issues like that. And it's interesting because I think the two women are representative of a a debate or two sides of the Republican Party that exist today, mm-hmm. especially in states like Illinois. Mm-hmm. You know, Penny Pullen was. She was a conservative rising star. She was one of the first, uh, one of the principal people uh, fighting against the Equal Rights Amendment in Illinois. She was, you know, friends with Phyllis Schlafly and Jerry Falwell and these sorts of people. And she was appointed to all sorts of presidential commissions. Uh, You know, most of these don't get very much attention. There's hundreds of commissions in in Washington, but she was appointed to one in the 80s on uh, that had to do with HIV AIDS. And she got all sorts of national attention and criticism for for that, uh, for her approach to it. And uh, we talk about that in in the book. Uh, But of all things, she was, the pro-life movement was, that was her cause. And I would say she sort of represents the, you know, evangelical Republican we talk about today. Mm -hmm. She was deeply religious, very conservative. Uh, She wasn't showy or someone who, you know, needed praise for for her work. She kind of just worked behind the scenes. Uh, and was very effective in that way and and definitely evoked strong reactions in people. She could be, um, uh, she was kind of a politician people either loved or hated. And people would say the same about Rosemary Mulligan. She was, uh, as I mentioned, she was a, just a paralegal when she decided to run. She was mm-hmm. a mother of two and and convinced because of this shi- this issue. And she's really the moderate Republican we talk about today, especially in election uh, in in so this, this was election a pri- season. this was a primary even. Yes, it was a Republican primary. So yeah, so I would say Rosemary's the moderate, you know, suburban woman who maybe used to vote Republican but has since shifted and maybe is conservative on fiscal issues but a little more moderate uh on social issues or or, or pro choice. And so And when is the uh, primary in Illinois? The primary still is in in March, so it's a very early that's Very short. early primary. That's yeah. short. So they got in and then they, they fought to the death. I won't ask you the outcome. And I won't ask you to give away too much of the book because we want everybody that's listening to to download it or buy a copy and read it because I think that it's incredibly informative about the times we're living in today. But you obviously did a lot of research while you were having this conversation. And these are people that have really impassioned and really committed beliefs about an issue that's really not that easy to talk about. How did you approach those people as you were doing this research? Were they were they open to have a conversation or were they, I mean, politicians in nature typically are happy to talk about themselves, but this also strikes me that there's a lot of other people involved. Tell me about the process of, of doing the research and getting to the bottom of, of this story and, and ultimately getting to writing the book about it. Absolutely. It, it can be a challenge to even get people to talk to you. And I, my background is... I, 
I worked in campaigns and then worked in public affairs. So I'm not a reporter. I'm not used to calling up people randomly or emailing them or showing up at their doorstep. And so that was certainly an adjustment. But I knew that I had, uh, I, I knew that I, I needed proof of concept before I started. So I started, sure. you know, looking up news news videos and saw this national coverage. You know, Diane Sawyer talking about this campaign. I thought okay, I've got something there. Um, but there wasn't enough for a book. So I had to actually talk to people. Sure. So uh, I just would track them down, call people up. And people are very hesitant to talk about about politics, about a campaign, especially because this was a very high, high stakes, high emotion uh, campaign. It was oh, very sure. personal for people, sure. even even 30 years, more than 30 years later. So, you know, it, it was funny, too, because I try to make very clear that this is not a book that expresses any political viewpoints in any way. It was not written for that purpose. Isn't that a fresh approach? (laughs) Yes, it can be difficult. Yes, It can be (laughs) difficult to do, but I've really tried to do that and just tell the story. And what I like to say is, um, you know, there's a hero for everyone in this book. If you're pro-choice, you will admire Rosemary Mulligan for her you know, willingness to to buck her party and to say what she thinks, no matter what mm-hmm. the outcome or the political consequences. And if you're pro-life, you will admire uh, Penny Poland for her dedication to her cause as well. So there's a hero for everyone in, in the book. And uh, interviewing people was a challenge because people either thought I was, when I was calling or writing, you know, too liberal or too conservative or whatever it was, they were worried that I was going to write something bad about them. So it took a lot of persuasion to get people. And, you know, you have people on the phone sometimes, uh, especially when you're talking about the personal details of both women's life stories, uh, coming to tears with you on the phone, which is a a new experience for me. Um, because, uh, especially particularly for Rosemary Mulligan had some, some, early tragedies in her life that I talk about in the book. Um, so that that was a challenge. And it's also a challenge making this local race interesting for people who have no connection to Illinois or the district itself. So I've tried really hard to do that as well. Yeah. And it's, um, well, in 1990, there probably weren't that many primaries where women candidates were going up against one another as well. Like, I mean, all, all of the pieces of this story are so incredibly fascinating to me. Tell me a little bit, and I know it's like right in the intro, but tell me a little bit about the the, the dimpled chat or the uh, whatever the the precedent was that that also was part of this case, the piece that also ties in then to the Gore v. Bush uh, Supreme Court yeah. ruling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in 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 two thousand, when uh, the recount was happening in Florida, uh, both. Both sides, the Bush side and the Gore side, were were looking for a case to support their view that Temple Chads should or should not be counted. I remember. <laughs> and, yeah, and it was a um, wild ride, obviously, but there were so few cases about how these punch card ballots should be counted if there's uh, some flaw, you know, these dimples or pregnant chads, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. And so David Boys, who was the attorney representing the Gore team, a very well-known litigator, took on uh, the Gore case. And they found an article in the Chicago Tribune that talked about this case from 1990 that said, hey, you, you know, the Illinois Supreme Court said you count dimple chads. And so while the case couldn't bind the Florida uh, canvassing boards, the counties that were counting these votes, 
it provided a reason for why they should. So uh, the Gore team uh, used that case as fuel to argue before canvassing boards in places like Broward County that, hey, here's this case. They counted these temple chads and uh, therefore you should too. So uh, what ended up happening is uh, that they inadvertently uh, represented what the case actually said. It, It didn't say that Dimple Chad should be counted. It said uh, that to the extent uh, a voter's intent can be ter- determined from the ballot, then it can be counted. Uh, and so the Bush team said, hey, uh, in places like Barrow County, this is resulting in hundreds of votes being counted that shouldn't be counted. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the cases they were, ro- were relying on was was this Poland v. Mulligan case from from 1990. And uh, it was it's an interesting perspective too because um both of the attorneys who represented rosemary mulligan the more moderate candidate and penny Poland, the more conservative candidate ended up working on the, the recount effort in florida except it was sort of flipped flipped the more moderate candidate uh candidate's lawyer worked for the bush team and the more conservative candidate's lawyer uh, was one who helped out uh, the Gore team. So it just huh. goes to show you that these issues really have no political home when it right? comes to a recount, Gosh, that's uh, so which I found fascinating. Uh, but these, one of the things today, too, is that these recounts really don't happen anymore because we don't vote in this way anymore. Right, right. That whole process to me is is fascinating. And the fact that this all happened in this small race and has really become something that we're talking about all the time. Not the recount, of course, but certainly the the issue of abortion and the issue of, um, well, the fight for the right, you know, and all of these other sort of debates that we're having here on the national stage. Interesting that it goes all the way back, and probably even earlier than that, there are other examples, but I cannot wait to read this. So how then, after you come to the decision to write the book, what is the process from there? You're doing the research, you're collecting all of your materials, you're getting this going. This is a three-year process. Uh, there's also, you know, getting getting everything in front of... Talk to me about how that all worked for you, Patrick. Well, the, when I first started this, I <laughs> printed out every article I could just on the first night. I, I thought about this, really. It was actually during COVID. People were still on, on lockdown and printed all these articles out and put it on all over my wall in my apartment. It looked like a scene from a murder mystery where someone's <laughs> trying to find a killer. Uh, so it was a mess in the beginning. But once I got my my act together, I really studied up on how you pitch books, how you get an agent, a literary agent, mm-hmm. how you pitch publishers, how that whole process works. And I knew that I wanted to do it in the traditional way with an agent and a, and a publisher. And so that was the first step. And nonfiction books are interesting, especially in Washington, because there's this whole ecosystem of of agents and editors, uh, mostly in New York, but in Washington, there's, there's lots of big names. There's Ross Yoon, which is a big agency. Um, Bob Barnett at Williams and Connolly is the, is like the go-to agent for all the big books he's done. He just did Liz Cheney, he did George Bush. He oh, did wow. every, every political book from Hillary Clinton, Sarah Palin. I mean, every big book, it's mm. all over the place. Uh, Javelin, which is another agency run by, uh, two former Bush staffers. And, um, well, I knew I wasn't going to get any of those people uh, <laughs> because I'm not a I'm not a famous name. I don't have a not huge yet. amount of social media. Not yet. Yes. Not yet. Not, yes. <laughs> and and time so time is still time is still with you. <laughs> <laughs> got plenty of time, at least at least for this first one. Um, but I think it, it ended up really well. Um, I I had to pitch 
once I had things prepped, I p- pitched, I don't know, a hundred agents, uh, wow. and probably, probably got, you know, six or seven responses back from people interested and it narrowed it down to three people. One of them was, you know, a guy who sells a lot of books and I felt like he would probably sell it. But when I asked about what he would change, he told me, you know, the writing sounds great. Uh, and I didn't like that because I knew, I knew it needed to do to be improved and could be improved. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the next person was a, a woman in, in LA who worked a lot with, they'd sold a lot of um, books to, you know, movie producers and that sort of thing, which is interesting because everyone wants that, you know. Um, but they said, we only go big or we go home. Meaning if it's not a huge deal, uh, we give up on you essentially. And oh. I thought, I know this is, I, I feel very good about this book and confident, mm-hmm. but I know that's not going to be the case right now. And the third woman I, I met with was just really much more engaged in improving the book, uh, helping me with the writing, helping me through the process, great communication. And I just felt like she was the best partner. And the line she kept using was, uh, I know there's a home for this book. And I, I felt that. I felt very good about that. So got an agent that took like, you know, six months because it's you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. Uh, and then we we started pitching books. And really, then is when you have to put your proposal together. And the difference between me and you know someone who's a, a politician or a, a reporter, someone with a strong background in writing is that most nonfiction books are sold on the proposal. Hmm. And so you don't have to actually generally speaking, write the full book. You just do a chapter or two and then they'll buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had no track record of, you know, I'm an old staffer and and uh, I have no background in writing books. Right. It's so your I first foray. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to write the whole book before we did any of that. Wow. So that before anyone would s- sign you, you could show that you could actually write a book. Yeah. Uh, so I finished, finished the book. We started, uh, uh, pitching publishers and ended up with a with a great partner in a Three Fields book. It's, it's a, a imprint of the University of Illinois Press, and they do uh, lots of great stories on <clears throat> Illinois political history and campaigns. Oh, very and cool. So it's been it's been a great a great partnership, and excited to see what happens. Uh, how what is your process for writing a book? Do you have to like go get in a quiet space? Do you turn the radio on really loud? Do you dance around in your pajamas? Like how does that everybody's process is different, but it strikes me that everyone has to really have a process or a way to sort of like buckle down and do the work. I would say lots of whiskey and wine uh, helps. <laughs> um, but I I definitely do it uh I do it late at night. I do it on airplanes. I okay. do it um um at night, really, because I, I I work full time during the day, and then I'm actually um, I'm in my last semester of law school right now. So I've been it's been a busy couple of years. I so mean, you just sort of fit it in wherever. If you a want lot something, of writing, yeah. What is it they say? If you want something done, ask a busy person. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, well, I've neglected a lot of time and uh, paying attention to my professors in class, and I've just been kind of <laughs> often emailing people and, and finishing the. The, the plan and everything uh, during class when I should be paying attention, but it's worked out okay. So that's awesome. I, I, I'm in awe. I mean, I've, I have at least two ideas for books, Patrick, and I've said it a couple times on the show myself. Um, and some of it is just, some of it's um, 
well, it's kind of an overused phrase, but imposter syndrome is a big, it's a big one that people talk about. Like, who do I think I am? I, I couldn't possibly write a book, but I love that you did the research. You got this. It's, it's fascinating. It could be a movie. I mean, uh, it could really think, be a movie. This is kind of an interesting, and there's a, several different probably like several different um, production companies that are specifically look looking for female leads. Um, so anyway, I, that's probably not next week, but that is something that's definitely. This is an interesting book. I cannot wait to really dig in and get. What is the timeline for the book itself? When does it get fully released and out the door? So it's it was fully released uh, last week. Oh. Okay, so, cool. Yeah. So last week, so <clears throat> we are uh uh online, uh Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It's also at um we're in physical stores in the Chicagoland area and then also in DC at uh bookstores like uh politics and prose and, and places like that. So uh all sorts of great places you can I you can get it. I'm downloading it today. I didn't realize it was already la- I lost track of time last week. All right, so the link will be in the show notes for everybody to tune in and um like get a copy and read this. I can't wait. I I read the, sort of the the preview that you sent to me and you're first off, I have to say your writing style is really really great. I mean, it really tells a great story about a really Thank complex you. issue that really breaks it down for people like me. And I love to, my joke is always like, you know, for, for dummies like myself, but, um, this is a cool story. It's a really cool story. And I love that it has direct ties into what's happening nationally. Now, so much of what people talk about, um, this is sort of my, the one thing I have to ask before we move on is people are really sort of holding on to the idea of abortion being a motivating issue on the Republican and the Democrat side. They talk about how the, um, the Supreme court decision is going to be a motivator. It's going to get people to the polls. And I don't necessarily, as much as I personally have my own views on abortion, I don't necessarily feel like it motivates people to get out and get to the polls and support one way or the other. Do you have a particular bend on that? Did you take anything away from the book as you finished it in terms of this particular issue? Well, certainly in this in, in this race, at least, it, it drove people out uh, on both sides. Uh, at least in in this legislative district, it was the highest turnout that they'd seen in history. Wow. Uh, so c- certainly there, it, it turned people out. And um I think time will tell what happens uh, in in November, and it will certainly be interesting what happens in a lot of these states where there's referendums and, right. um, but you know, other other initiatives. Um, I, I know that the we have some data on this uh, in Ohio at the last referendum uh, turnout was uh, almost a hundred percent. It was uh, of what it was. Uh, in, in that special election for that referendum mm-hmm. uh, compared to the 2022 midterms. Right. So that's huge. I mean, it turnout is usually like half of that for, for off, off year elections. And um, the other thing is uh, with women, if they certainly turn out in, in droves um, in Ohio, at least, which is the most recent example we have Yeah. Uh, people, women of the age of 50, uh, uh, their turnout in the Ohio referendum was 113% of the midterm levels from 2022. So the numbers certainly bear that out. Interesting. I guess we have to wait till November to really make some final uh, judgment as to whether or not it was a motivator. There's so many issues that are motivating people in general in 2024. Patrick, yeah, I can't and, believe, and, go ahead, please. 
No, and I was going to say, um, you know, that's that's sort of the, the the point I make too is that you know state legislatures they introduce twenty three times as many bills as Congress each year. They yeah. get very little attention. You yeah. know, your average legislator who's the head of a committee or or chair of something is more powerful than your run of the mill member of Congress and. The issues that affect people most are decided in local campaigns and on the on the legislative level. Yeah. And on every every issue, whether it's you know guns or abortion, there's a Rosemary Mulligan and there's a Penny Pollan paying close attention to those issues. Yeah. Uh, the The only question is who's paying attention to them, uh, and that's that's the point of the book, really. I love it. All right. Well, we're going to, I'm going to promote the heck out of it because I can't wait. And I'm literally, I'm getting on an airplane tomorrow. I'm downloading it. I can't wait to read it. Congratulations on all of your hard work. I'm thrilled for you. Uh, Before I let you go, I need you to make a nomination for who I should talk to for a future episode. Yeah. That's a great question. Well, I think uh, I'm going to nominate John Alsop, who is uh, a journalist. Um, He writes the morning newsletter for the Columbia Journalism Review. Uh, he actually lives in in the UK, so awesome. uh, but he's steeped in American politics. So it's always interesting to see someone else's perspective. Uh, this year has been it's like it's going to be an interesting year, 24. So I'm always sort of mining and looking for great stories and folks that are telling those great stories and creating a fantastic content. Patrick, I am thrilled to have had you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with me. Thanks, Lisa, for having me. I really appreciate it. There you have it. Another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I love having this show. I love you to be part of it. Thanks again. Thanks to PR Daily for being a partner. And thanks to the folks at Big Wig Podcast for letting us be part of their network. See you soon.